We're in Revelation chapter 7. We'll get verses 1 through 8 today to start with. What we ended up last week was doing some deep study to really take some time to look at a passage, break it down, compare it with other passages of Scripture to be able to really pull out what's really going on. Well, today we're going to be doing some more of that. Uh, We're going to be wrestling with where in the chronology of, uh, of Revelation is this, what we're going to be reading about, occurring. It appears, if you're going to read it, in a chronological fashion, that what we're reading tonight is going to happen between the 6th and the 7th seal. I'm going to show you scripturally, I don't believe that that's when it occurs. I actually believe this is a flashback. And it's actually referring to something that happened prior. We're going to get into all that in just a second. I was talking with some guys today about this study. And, you know, a lot of people are afraid of the book of Revelation. Because if you read it by itself, you go like, well, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. For those of you who have been here, you know that our desire is to take the book of Revelation, compare it with the whole of Scripture to see that actually most of what we have in the book of Revelation has been written in other parts of the Bible and already talked about. Revelation actually makes a lot more sense when you compare it with the whole of Scripture. There are some things that Revelation brings to us that we didn't know before. For example, the the Old Testament has talked for many years about the fact that Jesus was going to come back and literally rule and reign on the earth. We now know from Revelation that that's going to be a thousand years that that's going to be. We call it the millennium and all that. So putting the whole of Scripture together, the book of Revelation makes a whole lot more sense. We're going to be doing that again tonight to really kind of wrestle with this 144,000 and their ceiling and when did it occur and all that kind of stuff. So would you pray with me as we jump into this study? Father, again, uh, our whole purpose is to hear from you, not from me. And I thank you for the fact that as I come to this time, I can rest in the fact that you will accomplish your purpose. All we need to do is open your word and allow you to speak and and, and just read it and, and have you lead us and guide us. And Lord, I thank you for the fact that it's not resting on me to make sure that people get it. That's your job. My job is just to teach it and to uh, allow you to do the work. And I thank you for the fact that you desire us to understand your word and to know what is going on in our world right now and where things are going to be going. And Father, tonight as we do this study and wrestle with a a passage of Scripture that's been kind of hard to understand for years, we pray that you'll give us insight and understanding. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Alright, now, the question we're going to start off with, and we're going to find out a lot more answers to other questions tonight through answering this original question. The question we're going to start off with is, when does this ceiling of these 144,000 occur? Again, if you're reading this chronologically, it would appear that this is happening between the 6th and the 7th seals. Remember, we've already looked at the first six seals. The 7th seal will begin in chapter 8. But I 
want to show you that I believe that this, what we're reading here, actually occurred prior to the, seventh seal, the, the first six seals that we've already read about. And actually, we, I can almost definitely prove that it at least occurred before the third seal. And I'll explain to you why in time. I believe that what we're looking at here is a flashback. Alright, it's a literary kind of a thing. And I'm going to illustrate what I'm talking about here uh, by showing you a couple of illustrations of it in Revelation that are a little more clear. Go to Revelation chapter uh, 11. In Revelation chapter 11, you see verses 7 through 10. Look at what it says. In verses 7 through 10, it says, Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Now we see here in Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 through 10, that the beast comes and puts to death these two witnesses in Jerusalem. We'll get to that later on, who they are and all that stuff. But for right now, I want you to see that the beast is referenced here. But actually, we don't really see the beast come into occurrence here until chapter 13. So actually you'll see that it can't be chronological because we're not even given the description of the beast. You know, He's not even introduced until chapter 13, but he's referenced here in chapter 11. Let me give you another example of that. Go to Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 20, Revelation 14 verse 20 says, They were trampled in the winepress, Outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 16,000 stadia. Alright? This is actual, and you'll see when we get there in our study, a vivid description of God's wrath being poured out. But the battle in which this occurs really doesn't happen until chapter 19. Alright? So you'll see that in this study of, of Revelation, there's going to be things referenced... But if you try to read it chronologically, it's going to really mess you up. You're going to have to, when you come to a passage and look at it, say, okay, when did this occur? And as you know, we've already talked about, great scholars have disagreed over the timings of whether or not these are happening in the first half or this is in the second half. And what I'm just simply teaching you is what I believe it is, according to Scripture, you're going to have to wrestle it with it for yourself. But as I said earlier, I believe that what we read in verse, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and the ceiling of the 144,000 occurs at the beginning. I think it's at the beginning of the tribulation period, that seven-year period left for the nation of Israel. It has to happen at least before the third seal, and we'll get to the reason why for that right, in just a little bit. All right? So, we all just, we're clear on where I'm at right now? What we've just read is happening, I think, before, and I'm going to try to break down for you why. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Right? Who are they? Yeah, if you want to know who they are, you'll have to wait until we get there. We're going to answer all that. These are two witnesses that work for the Lord, and uh, they actually, for a long period of time, three and a half years, are allowed to. Uh, they, they teach about Jesus, they stand in the city of Jerusalem, they preach about Jesus. Fire can come out and devour anybody that tries to stop them. Plagues occur if anybody tries to stop them. And then after that time period, God allows the, the beast to kill them. I thought it was very, it was very similar to 
It was a dishonor. It was a dishonor. And you'll see... Because at that... Understand when we get there, it'll make a whole lot more sense. But for right now, understand that at that point, God allows the bad guys, if you will, to look like they won. And they celebrate for, for three days. Oh, by the way, that's a wonderful illustration of the fact that Revelation makes a whole lot more sense today than it did years ago. Because 70 years ago, if you read that, it would make no sense. How could everybody in the world see them at the same time? Nowadays, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Because of satellites and that kind of a thing. Things are happening now that are making this make more sense. But in answer to the rest of your question, at the end of this time period, after those time, the time that they're laying dead on the streets, they come back to life. And they ascend right to heaven, right there in front of everybody. It's a good thing they weren't buried, I guess, in that sense. But yeah, so but again, a lot of that stuff will make a lot more sense later on. I'm simply using those illustrations to show you here's something referenced, but it doesn't really occur till later on. Here's something referenced, but it really doesn't occur till later on. This is something that's being talked about that I think happened earlier. All right? One of the first ways we can deal with that. Go ahead, Fred. Isn't it true also that I remember reading somewhere, I can't recall, that the 144,000 We're going to be getting to all that. Yes. That's what we're going to get to. You guys are all so in such a hurry to get to the answers here tonight. All right? I'm just trying to back up what you're saying. Yes, right. <laughs> That's where we're going to go. That's where we're going to go. All right? First thing we can see from this passage that shows us that this doesn't happen right at this point is this reference to the four winds. Do you see it here in verse, uh, verse number 1? It says, And after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. Now, if you were to read that just by itself and try to understand it by yourself, it sounds like there would be no wind on the earth at all, like everything was still. But actually, remember, when you read Scripture, you want to interpret it by using Scripture to interpret Scripture. When you run across something here that you're not quite sure what it is, is it referenced anywhere else in Scripture? Is there anywhere else in Scripture that talks about four winds or the winds? And so that's what we're going to do. Put a bookmark here in Revelation. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 49. And as you're doing that, I want to set you up with the fact that typically in Scripture, the winds describe judgment that is to come. I'm going to say it again. Typically in Scripture, the winds describe judgment that is to come. So Revelation, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 49. Someone want to read loud enough for our recorder to pick up? Verses 34 through 39. All right, Jeremiah chapter 39, sorry, 49, verses 34 through 39. Thirty-four through thirty-nine. I will bring against Elam the four words from the four quarters of the heavens. I will scatter them to the four winds, and there will not be a nation where Elam's exiles do not go. I will shatter Elam before their foes, before those who seek their lives. I will bring disaster upon them, even my fierce anger, declares the Lord. I will pursue them with the sword until I have made an end of them. I will set my throne in Elam and destroy her king and officials, declares the Lord. All right, you see here, there's a judgment coming to Edom, or Elam. And you see what's going, how he describes it as the four winds. And he's going to release the four winds. Again, it's a picture of the judgment that is to come. All right, go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 
Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. It said, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, I, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. And then he goes on to describe the rest of the vision, which we'll come back to later on in our study, because this whole section deals with what's going on in Revelation. But for right now, you just see again, the four winds of heaven were, were churning up the great sea. When, and I'm going to show you a couple of the passages, but, or at least one. What I want you to see is this, when God talks about the four winds, and they're being released... It's judgment that affects the earth. Okay? So, Hosea chapter 13 is another place where it's referenced. Go to Hosea chapter 13, verse 15. Alright? In verse 15 of Hosea chapter 13, it says, Even though he thrives among his brothers... An east wind from the Lord will come, blowing in from the desert. His spring will fail, and his well will dry up. His storehouse will be plundered, all of its treasures. Again, we see the winds referring to judgment. So with that being typically what it refers to, I want to suggest to you, and I think it is, that these angels are at the four winds of the earth, waiting and holding the judgment, is what it is. But they're told not to release the judgment until when? Until the 144,000 are sealed. And look at the script, the script. Look at what it says. He says to them, verse 3, Do not harm... Or back up. In verse 2, Then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. All right? The seals haven't been, haven't been, this doesn't happen, and the four winds judgment can't occur until they're sealed. Now, what's the four winds? It's the angels releasing the judgment, and it's going to affect the land and the sea. This is why I tell you that at least prior to the third seal, this has to happen, because in the third seal we have what? Remember we have the white horse in the first seal, with the Antichrist coming out and setting up his kingdom. We have the red horse, which is war, in the second seal. The third seal is the black horse, which is what? Famine. What happens to the earth in order to have famine? It's going to be dry. There's no rain. There's going to be dry. It, that has an effect on the earth. If there's famine, the earth has suffered some consequences. They're not allowed to bring judgment on the earth. Don't harm the earth until the 144,000 are sealed. So these sealing, this sealing has to occur at least prior to the third seal of Revelation. Like I said earlier, and I think I can prove it to you in, in a little bit here, I believe that the sealing of the 144,000 Jews is at the very beginning of that last seven-year period for the nation of Israel. All right? Any questions before we move on? Alright, the second th- reason why I think this happens prior is found in chapter 14 of Revelation. Move over to chapter 14 of Revelation and you'll see this 144,000 described again. And they're described in a certain way which gives us a little insight into the timing of their sealing. Alright? 144,000 are mentioned in Revelation chapter 14 again now, starting in verse 1. So then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name, his father, and his father's name written on their foreheads. 
And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now the 144,000 are described as first fruits. What do we know about first fruits? They're, they're representative of the whole harvest. And when are they gathered? First. So, if these are the first fruits, and they have been redeemed during this time period of the tribulation, they have to be the first ones saved, if you will, during the tribulation in order to be the first fruits. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? Now, in Revelation chapter 6, we saw in the fifth seal that when he opened that seal, there were souls under the altar who had already been killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And they were saying, when are you going to avenge our blood? These guys, if they're the first fruits, had to have at least been prior to that. And as you're about to see, as Fred was talking about, their purpose will also show us when they're going to go, when, why they're, they're early too. But go ahead. And the seal on their hand and forehead, is this It doesn't say hand, it just says forehead. Okay, is mm-hmm. this for their protection? Yes, we'll get to that in a little bit. But yes, the sealing is, is a protection uh, so that no one could touch them. Okay? And we're going to get to that in a little bit because it's kind of cool for us to understand something in the day and age in which we live. But we'll get back to that in a second. Alright? Good questions? I'm not giving any answers yet. Alright? Go to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to show you this, this, this picture of first fruits. Alright? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23. Here Paul's dealing with those who say there is no resurrection of the dead and he then in this whole chapter deals with well if there's no resurrection of the dead then Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead and you're still in your sins but he has been raised from the dead and it says here in verse 20 but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for since death came through a man the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Alright? This is the resurrection from the dead. Now, some of you would say, wait a minute, didn't Jairus' daughter come back from the dead? Didn't Lazarus come back from the dead? Why are they not the first fruits, though? They died again. That must have been a bummer, by the way. You know? To die twice. But they died again. Jesus' resurrection is a resurrection to new life, never to die again. He's the first one. And He's the picture of the rest of us who are going to be resurrected to new life, never to die again. Go ahead. Well, and the promise hadn't been fulfilled, the Lamb hadn't been slain. That's right. So they were prior to the fulfillment of the prophecy. They were, they were definitely that, but at the same time, the easier answer is they died. <laughs> you know? <laughs> now, I'm going to give you two to write down. We're not going to take the time to look at them. But in Romans 16, verse 5... Paul talks about this one individual who's the first fruits of those who get saved in that area. Okay, the first convert. Some of your, actually, your translations will actually say first convert instead of first fruits. All right, another place is 1 Corinthians 16, 15. 
The first one was Romans 16.5, then 1 Corinthians 16.15. Again, Paul references to the first person saved in that area, and he describes in most translations him as first fruits. Um, but again, some of your translations will say first convert. It's again, first fruits is a picture of one who represents a greater group, but they're always first to be first fruits. All right? Now, folks, let's just be honest. The Bible talks about us bringing our first fruits to God in our giving. Unfortunately, a lot of us tend to bring him what's left. It's not first fruits. First fruits is, I'm going to bring it to you. Now, you have to understand where this came from. God was giving us an incredible picture because, see, those of you that know anything about farming and about gardening, especially when you have a big farm, there is a short window to get your crop out of the field. And farmers will tell you, they could spend all their year preparing the crop, getting the field ready, watching it grow, but they are also praying real hard that the weather will line up and everything will be perfect so that when it's time to harvest, they get their field harvested before damage comes and they lose the whole crop. So there's always a short window for harvest and everything has to line up nicely. What God told the nation of Israel to do was to go when it was time to harvest and go grab the first fruits or the first tenth, the best of the crop, harvest it, leave the rest in the field, leave the other 90% in the field, take that first fruits, don't harvest anymore, go to the temple and worship. Bring it to God. Now, if you're a farmer, you're saying, this isn't wise, time is tight. But what you were really saying when you did that was, you know what, God, you've got my back. I trust that you're going to take care of that other 90% and give it to me. And so I'm going to prove that I trust you and not my ability to fix this situation. I'm going to do a stupid thing and I'm going to give you the best in the first. And I'm going to trust you to take care of the rest. And that's what the Bible talks about with our tithing and with our giving. We're to give Him first. Give Him the best. And trust that He's able to make the rest of it work out. Sad thing is today, if I ask most people in churches, do you believe God actually took the five loaves and two fish and fed all these people and there was enough left over for 12 basketfuls? They'd say, yeah. But none of us believe that He's able to do it. I'm not going to say none of us, but many of us don't believe that He's able to do it with our checkbooks. Are you able to, if you well, I'm not paying my bills with 100% of my paycheck. I guarantee you, because actually that's one of the few places God says you can test Him. If you give Him the tenth first and you trust that He's able to take care of the 90%, I guarantee you, you'll see a five-loaf, two-fish miracle happen in your life where He takes, when you weren't able to pay your bills with 100% of your paycheck, He'll take the 90% and make it go further than the 100% ever did, and you'll have leftover. Do we really believe that He's able to do it? Oh, I believe He did it. Prove it. Prove that you believe God's got your back. That's the whole idea of first fruits. okay? So... Now, why do I think, going back to Revelation chapter 7, that this happens not between the 6th and the 7th seal? One reason is the four winds. The angels are told not to bring their judgment. Don't harm the land or the sea until these have been sealed. There's harm going on in the third seal, so it has to happen prior to that. We also see here that they were called the first fruits. Therefore, they had to have at least happened. These people, the redeemed from the earth, had to be the ones saved prior to the fifth seal where there were many who came to faith in Jesus Christ and who were killed for it. But there's other reasons for this as well. And we're going to see here is that's their purpose. And this is what you referenced earlier, Fred. The purpose I'm going to show you, their purpose was to go and be God's witnesses throughout the entire earth to preach salvation through Jesus Christ. That's why they were sealed. That's why they were protected. Now, let's deal with the sealing for a second. The sealing is when they, the, the angels put this mark on their forehead. Now, that means they can't be touched. Now, do you believe that this sealing 
by God is going to be something that humans can see? I'm going to lean toward the fact, no, it's not going to be something humans can see. All right? Right, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying is, is even though they have God's name written on their forehead, you're not going to be alive at that time if you're a child of God through Jesus Christ. But if you were, I don't think you'd see it. But who does see it? Demons, the spiritual realm. Think back. When Jesus walked on the earth, He was 100% man, but He was also God. Humans couldn't see that He was God. They just saw the physical. That's all our eyes are able to see. Once in a while, if God chooses, He he allows our human eyes to see the spiritual realm, but very rarely. But the demon realm, the spiritual realm, when Jesus walked on the earth, they not only saw human Jesus, they saw God. And when Jesus walked up to this man who had a legion of demons in him, what did the demons say? We know who you are. Yeah, it's not the appointed time. Are you going to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? Why? They saw God. Now, folks, let's just deal with this for a minute. The Bible says that when you were saved... I want you to see this. Put a bookmark here. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 13 and 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. When you got saved, God put a seal on you. Now you say, wait a minute, Jim. If the seal is a protection where they can't be harmed, how come harm comes to us? Well, the seal that we have is very similar to the seal that these people are going to have. But the difference is, at that time, God will not allow the demon realm to have any authority over them. But in the time we live in, the Bible teaches that sometimes God allows the enemy to do some things in our lives. Yet, God controls the parameters, the limits. You remember? Job. Satan said, the only reason Job loves you is because you won't let me do anything to him. God says, I'll tell you what. You can't touch him, but I'll let you do whatever you want. He killed all of his family. Then God, he comes back to Job and says, I mean, to God and says, Job responded, good, because you wouldn't let me touch him. God says, I'll tell you what, here are the parameters. And he allowed Satan to touch Job in his physical body. He just wasn't allowed to kill him. And so then... God allowed it. Again, we see in Luke 22 this same picture. After Peter had made his profession of his faith in Jesus Christ, in Luke 22, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Now, why is Satan asking? Because he can't touch Peter. He's got a seal. Can't touch Peter without God's permission. But I want you to understand, we'll get right to you there. I want you to understand, right now, if anything happens to you from the the bad side, if you will. God has allowed it. He's using it for His purposes, and He set the limits. That's why in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul is able to say, No temptation has seized you, but first such is common to man. He will not allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear, and with the temptation, He'll provide a way to escape. Why does it sound like God is actively involved in this temptation? 
because He's controlling it. He doesn't tempt anyone. James chapter 1, verse 13 is very clear. God does not tempt anyone. But He allows Satan to do what Satan does for His purposes sometimes. Erwin Lutzer, pastor at Moody Church up in Chicago one time, put it this way. He called Satan God's Satan. God uses him and his abilities, if you will, and his desires for God's purposes sometimes. At this point, though, that we see this 144,000 sealed, they can't be touched because God never says yes. You, I believe you and I have the same kind of sealing. But God allows the demons to, at times, for his purposes, tempt us and have permission to an extent sometimes. Go ahead. They've seen the seal. I believe it without a question. I believe without, I know one time I was dealing with a demon possession situation. Actually, your wife was involved with this time. And Jim Capel and I and Martha went. And we were dealing with this whole situation. And we all three of us went in to deal with this one girl who had a demon. And she was possessed. And things were moving around in the house. And as we went in there, and I preached the gospel for almost two hours. The whole time, this teenage girl just wouldn't say anything. Just sat there, just scowling. And after... Teaching and preaching for two hours felt like God said, you're done. Nothing had happened. She hadn't gotten saved. I just taught and preached. Nothing happened. So we get up to leave. All three of us get up to leave. And uh, as we're outside the door, all of a sudden the younger daughter comes running out. This is We're talking 2, 3 in the morning this is going on. The younger daughter comes running out and says, you got to get back in here. you got to get back in here. She's tearing the place apart. And she was out of control. Amazingly, and I think back to it, I'm amazed that God even let me do this. Martha said, I'm supposed to go there by myself. You guys stay on the porch and pray for me. And Jim Capel and I literally stayed on the porch praying for Martha as she went back into the house. Half an hour later, Martha comes to the door. And she said, would you like to meet your new sister in Christ? Martha had led her to Jesus Christ and she got saved. And folks, when we got back into that house to see this girl, she was a different girl. Well, I was, to be honest with you, a little exasperated. I'm thinking, okay... She's 18 years old. I said, I was in here teaching and preaching some of my best stuff, you know? Why didn't you respond then? This is what she said, and it stuck with me. She said, I couldn't hear a word you were saying. Because the whole time you were talking, the demon inside of me was speaking louder, and he kept saying, I don't want him here. I don't want him here. It wasn't Jim Johnson that he saw. The demon saw Jesus. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? I walked out of there and I remember going home as we drove home. I said, you know what? It's neat to know the demons see Jesus in me. You have a seal. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit if you've been saved. God Himself lives inside of you. Folks, get that in your mind. Because when stuff happens and we think, well, Satan's messing with me. The only way He is is if God gave Him permission. That means God is doing something. You say, wait a minute, okay, my father's doing something here. He's allowed the enemy to tempt me. He's allowed the enemy to, to do this. He's trying to teach me something. He's trying to mature me. He's trying to grow me. Don't give Satan more authority than he has, folks. He can't do whatever he wants. He's on a leash. 
these 144,000 are marked with a seal. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't come and indwell the believers in the tribulation. But these are marked with a seal and the demons can't touch them. But what is their purpose? Their purpose is to, as I'm going to show you, go out into the whole world and to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ during this last seven year period on the earth, especially set aside for the nation of Israel. Go with me back to Genesis chapter 2. Sorry, chapter 12. Jim? Yes, sir. Exactly. Exactly. The Bible says, Submit yourself therefore to God. James chapter 4. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Don't think you're going to go fight Satan. You back up into your daddy's big robe. And he'll leave. He doesn't leave because of you. He must flee. He must flee. But again, it's not because of you. It's because of God. In Genesis chapter 12, let's go back and take a look at God's design for the nation of Israel and the people of Israel. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, it said, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country and your people and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Alright? This is God's promise to Abram. Now, there was no Jewish nation at that time, but God started with this man, Abram, and He said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And I'm going to bless the world through you. Of course, the Messiah came through the nation of Israel, starting with Abraham and then all the following descendants. But God had a purpose to bless the whole world through Abram and the nation of Israel. Go to Exodus chapter 19. Look at verses 3 through 6. This is on Mount Sinai. It said, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Your, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully, and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, here they're described that they were to be a kingdom of priests. What was the role of a priest? Intercessor between who? God and man. Again... They were going to be God's representatives on earth for God to the people. Now, we're not going to take the time to do this. Um, if you want to make a note here, in Isaiah 43, don't turn there, but in Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 12, twice in that passage, God calls Israel His witnesses. There's a lot of places, and I just felt for the sake of time we weren't going to do that. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that God had designed the nation of Israel to be the ones who witness to who God is. Now, if you think back to where the nation of Israel is and where God planted them, the land He promised Abram, He said, this land is going to be yours as an everlasting possession. All right, Where is it? Back in that day, it was in the dead center of the whole earth. That's all there was at that time. You had Egypt to the south, you had you know, Babylon and other nations like that to the north. But if you wanted to get from here to here, there's only one place you could go through. 
It was right through that little tiny strip of the nation of Israel. Uh, about the, it's actually right now about the size of the state of New Jersey. Not a real big place, but God put them right there. Why? So that they would be His witnesses. That they would show who God is. That they would reveal to the rest of the world the glory of God. It's been God's design to use people for this purpose. What did they do? They disobeyed and they kept him to themselves. And honestly, folks, if you do study about this, you'll find that the Jewish mindset was that there were only two possible reasons why God made Gentiles. One was we needed servants. They think we needed servants, and so he made Gentiles to be our servants. And here's the other reason. They believed in a hell, and there had to be someone that went to hell. And it can't be us Jews. So he made Gentiles to go to hell. Those are the two reasons. And they began... Now, that's why when the, when the, the Jews went into captivity and they intermarried with, the, with the, the, the Gentiles and they moved back, the half-breeds they called Samaritans and they wanted nothing to do with them. But all throughout Scripture, if you go back to even the story where Jesus is being presented in the temple and Simeon comes and... Remember, he had been told he wouldn't die until he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And as he comes, you go back in Luke 1 and you will... I'm sorry, Luke 2. You're going to see his prophecy about this child and he said it's going to be a light to the Gentiles. All along, it was God's design that, that He would be not only revealing Himself to the nation of Israel, but through the nation of Israel also to the Gentiles. Remember what Jesus told His disciples there in Matthew 28. Go into where? All the world. And preach the Gospels. Making disciples of every nation. But if you study even the early church, Peter had to have a vision of God where the sheet comes down with all the animals on it that He's not allowed to touch. And God said, look, what I call clean, don't call unclean. And then there's a knock on the door and the Gentile says, would you come to my house? And Peter's realized, now I... It's interesting. Here's Peter, full of the Spirit to preach at Pentecost, which, by the way, means under the control of the Spirit. And he was preaching at Pentecost, yet it isn't until many years later in Acts chapter 10 that when he sees God save Cornelius and his family, who are Gentiles, you go back and you look in chapter 10 of Acts, uh, Peter says, now I know that God actually likes everybody. When Paul would go into a town, he would go into the synagogues to teach the people who understood the Scriptures and preach that Jesus was the Christ. When they rejected Him, what did He say? I'm going to the Gentiles then. And then even in the early church, you have the church situation happened like 40-something years later after the beginning of the church. They have the council at Antioch there where they are wrestling with whether or not Gentiles have to be circumcised or whether or not they're really saved and all this kind of stuff. The nation of Israel had said it so ingrained in their head that they were the only ones God loved. They weren't being the witness to the rest of the world. They weren't shining the light to the rest of the world. They were keeping it to themselves. And even the early church had that same problem. And do we not? What has happened to the church today is we've got to have people act Christian before we'll let them come to our church. Let's be honest, folks. Let's just be straight up honest. Our churches have turned into country clubs where as long as you look like me, sing like me, use the translation I use, and leave me in power, you can be in my club. I remember one time I was sitting at a, at a, at a Chinese restaurant with uh, some friends from different churches. You were there. Ken was there with me. And we're sitting there talking about the Lord. Four guys from different churches. We're just talking about the Lord. We're talking about so loud. This lady oversaw, overheard us. 
She comes over and she said, I am so sorry, I've been eavesdropping the whole time. And I remember thinking to myself, my voice is so loud, the whole restaurant's been eavesdropping. <laughs> but that's okay, I don't mind. She said, I'm a new believer. I just got saved and I'm looking for a church. Where do you guys go to church? I want to go to your church. We had to say to her, look, we're actually, he's from this church, he's from this church, he's from that church, and I'm actually going to be preaching at this guy's church on Sunday. And I was going to be preaching at First Baptist Atlantic that Sunday. And then her next question crushed me. She said, I'm kind of a heavy woman. And she was. And she said, I don't have any dresses that fit. Can I wear pants? Now folks, think about this. Her first thought was... Will I be accepted by how I'm dressed? Why is that? Because we've made it that way. We've made it that way. Folks, we're to be shining a light about who Jesus is, not who our club, club is and what our club rules are. We're supposed to be talking about Jesus, not about our church. And what has happened is it's the same kind of thing, the same kind of problem has crept into the Christian church as well. We're supposed to be a light to the world about Jesus Christ. I know in my years of pastoring different churches, I've been interviewed by a bunch, and I could tell you stories for days about some of those interviews. I'll tell you right now. But I remember one that I was talking to a church years ago, 20 years ago, probably a little less, a church in Louisiana. And I knew it was in a section of Louisiana that was known for the KKK. And I asked the interview, the, the committee who was interviewing me, I said, um, if I come as your pastor and I go knocking on doors to invite people to our church and I run across the black family, would I be in trouble if I invited them to come? They said, um, well, they have their own churches. I said, let me ask my question again. If I invited them, would they be allowed to come? Well, they wouldn't like it here. Let me ask you one more time. If I invite them, will I be in trouble? This is what they said. We don't think you're the man for our church. I don't think you're the church for this one. Folks, all along, God had designed the nation of Israel to be His witnesses. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected His plan to use them as His, as his witness, to be used as His witnesses. And He gave that responsibility to the church. We're not doing the greatest either. Yet, there comes a time, and it's coming soon, where the church age will come to a close. When the Gentiles have been used of God to make Israel jealous, as it says in Romans. He draws His church to be with Him. The bride of Christ to go be with Him. And during that last seven year period for the nation of Israel, He gives the nation of Israel another chance. And He seals 144,000. Look closely here at Revelation chapter 7. They are 144,000 Jews. And He seals them, and He sends them out as His servants, it says here. We see from the rest of Scripture, they're to be His witnesses. They're to be the priests before God, if you will. And they go where? Out. Where do, we, where do they go, though? All four corners of the earth. How do we know this? Well, remember what we looked at in chapter 7, verses 9 through 14? When you saw this multitude unnumerable from every tribe, people, nation, language, and one of the elders said to John, who are these people? And John said, wonderful answer. He didn't say, I don't know. He said, sir, you know, but it's pretty much the same. I have no idea who these people are, but you know. And the elder says, these are those who've come out of the great tribulation. 
Well, how did they hear? How did they know to wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb? Because the church has been removed. How did they hear? 144,000 witnesses have been sent by God. And that's why I believe what we're reading here in Revelation 7 occurs at the beginning of the seven-year period. Because at that point, all those who know who God is have been removed. He now sends out His witnesses into all the earth to go preach the good news. Many come to salvation. Many are killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ during this time period. But these are sealed by God and protected from the attacks that are happening to the rest of the believers because they've got a job to do. Yes, ma'am. You know, it's interesting. All these things that need to take place before the second coming, even the details of 140,000, mm-hmm. 12,000 each I mean, you know, if we were trying to set these numbers up, obviously we couldn't do that. But in God's Well, that leads right to where we're going next. As she was talking about the 12,000 from each tribe, we have, a, we have a conundrum here. Those that are Bible scholars have wrestled with this for a while. If you compare this list of the 12 tribes of Israel with the 12 tribes listed in Genesis chapter 49, you're going to have a problem. Because there are 12 listed here, but one of the 12 from Genesis 49 is missing. Anybody know who it is? Dan. The tribe of Dan is not mentioned. Instead, you have a tribe of Joseph, or sorry, not Joseph, but Manasseh, who is listed in place of the tribe of Dan. Manasseh was one of the descendants of Joseph. Why is Dan not mentioned is why people have, have uh, wrestled with for years. And I'm going to give you a couple of possible answers, and then I'm going to give you the right answer. All right? Yes, ma'am. Where is Ephraim? Because they used to say half-tribe Yeah, they say half-tribe, but... You're asking questions that I'm going to answer. But not just yet, because I'm not jumping ahead of you. Alright? Go back to Genesis chapter 49, verses 16 through 18. I'm just telling you to go to Genesis 49. You can write down whatever you want to. I'm going to read to you verses 16 through 18. If, it's a neat thing to do on your own. If you really are interested in this kind of a study, you go back and you take a look at what Joseph, uh, sorry, Jacob did when he blessed his sons. As he blessed each of his sons before he died, he prophesied about each of them. It's very interesting to see how a lot of those prophecies that he pro- proclaimed thousands of years before have been, have been accomplished. But there's an interesting prophecy about Dan. It says, Dan will provide justice for his people... As one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent by the roadside. A viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. Isn't that interesting? Just called his son a snake who's going to lay wait and attack the heels. Now, let's be honest. Who else is described as the one who is a serpent who strikes the heel? Satan. Now there are those, I'm not sure I'm one of them, so don't hear that, but there are those that believe that because of this prophecy right here that the Antichrist is going to come from the tribe of Dan. 
Because he was referenced as the serpent who bites at the heel, there are those who strongly believe that the reason why Dan is not mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 is because the Antichrist is going to come from the tribe of Dan. Now, please hear me on this. There are those who will fight to the death sometimes, unfortunately, which we shouldn't, on whether or not the Antichrist is going to come from Jewish lineage. Some are convinced that he's going to be a Muslim. Others are going to say, no, he has to be from the Roman descendant. He has to be attacked. We don't know. We don't know. All we know is that the Bible teaches that the Antichrist is going to be in charge of the one world government that's going to be centered from the old revival of the Roman Empire, which we know is the European Union and all that right now. That much we'll get to in time, but we know that much. Whether or not the Antichrist comes from the tribe of Dan or not, I don't know. Now, if you were really into this kind of stuff, and I wasn't going to bore you with it, so I didn't, do, didn't bring that work for, for you to look at tonight. If you want to go and look at all the times the 12 tribes of Israel are mentioned all the way out throughout the scripture, you're going to find a very interesting thing. You're going to be hard-pressed to find two identical lists. Because actually, many times, this one's left out, but this one's mentioned in its place. Or they use this name for this tribe instead of this, this name for this tribe. And to be really honest with you folks, you're going to have a hard time finding lists that are identical all the time. You want to know why Dan is not mentioned in the book of Revelation? We don't know. It's okay to say we don't know. There are people who have reasons why they believe it is, speculations why they believe it is, but I'm going to be really honest with you folks. As you know, I'm going to shoot straight at you. I'm not going to teach the company line. We really don't know why. If God chooses to reveal it, He will. I don't believe he has yet. I don't believe he has. So, someone says, where's the lost tribe of Dan in Revelation 7? Sir, you know. (laughs) Right? God knows. God knows. Don't get yourself all hung up on it. If God wants us to know, he'll let us know. And trust me, it's very important that they're all listed because every word is God-breathed. It's not an accident that that's in there. Don't look at it, oh, that's no big deal. No, there's a reason why. It hasn't been revealed yet. So it's okay to say we don't know. Oh, by the way, you may hear me say that a couple more times as we continue with the rest of this book. But there are things that become clear. There are things that make some sense. But right now, when it comes to the lost tribe of Dan, I don't know. Now, going back to your question on where's Ephraim, because it's the half-tribe of Manasseh, half-tribe of Ephraim and all that. We don't know. And you know what? It feels good to say, I don't know. It feels good to say, I don't know. Because you know what? There's been a lot of things I'm sure I've said over the years, I know. And then when I stand before God, He'll say, did you, did you really? No, no, I guess I didn't. <laughs> Think about what Job said. You know, he spent all that time defending himself. And, and then God shows up and says, I'll tell you what, Job, you've been wanting a face-to-face with me. He had said, oh, if I could only have a face-to-face with God, I could defend myself. And God shows up and says, okay, big guy, let me ask you a couple of questions. Before you ask me yours, let me ask you a couple of quick ones, then you ask away. Uh, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and all the angels celebrated? Uh, where's all the storehouses of snow held? Who controls this, that, and the other? How does that all work? Oh, by the way, this uh, great fire-breathing dragon, by the way, I really believe it is, Leviathan. Can you, can you control it? Can you touch it? I can Okay, what are your questions? What do you want to ask? And Job says, I had heard of you, but now I've seen you. 
and I repent in dust and ashes, and I put my hand over my mouth. Folks, in this day of increased knowledge, we want to figure it all out. And there's guys out there that will make you happy because they think they have. But I think we're going to find out one day. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to God. The things revealed belong to us and our children. I don't really believe the answer to that question has been revealed just yet. And I'm okay with it. If you're not, have fun. There's lots of websites you can look up on the tri- Lost Tribe of Dan. All right. Any questions before we wrap up? Any questions before we close? Yes, sir. They weren't at the end of the church age, but they become believers. Yes. God is able to do that. Yes. I love how you put it. Peggy here said, just like Paul. Paul was on his way to go kill Christians, or at least put them in jail. Yep. And God was able by himself to get their attention. I guess I would have expected there to be some mention of the conversion. Yeah. Yep. Nope. Yep. The rest of the Jews, no, many Jews will be coming to faith later on. Uh, there will be a lot of Jews killed during that time. But as you're going to see, at the very end of the seven year period, the ones who are left. It's not, it's not a selection of No. But they have been chosen as a witness. But they go out into all the world. God's still going to be putting witness, two witnesses right in Jerusalem to be continuing to preach. And by the end, when he comes back, they're going to believe in. The nation of Israel is going to come to faith. Those that are there. Yes. So that they do as a nation repent and come back to That's it, exactly. And that 144,000. There are some cults that actually believe that this is referring to the people who are actually going to be able to be in heaven. Because they take Revelation 14 and they're going to be with God. I'm sorry? They also also believe that... Well, the the cult I'm thinking about thinks that a millennial kingdom is still coming. But they also believe, though, that only 144,000 are actually going to be in heaven with God. Well, the problem they ran into was they started giving out those tickets over the years. And uh, Jesus didn't come back as soon as they thought he would. And they've already given out all the tickets. And so now, if you become a member of that, that I'm going to just call it as it is, that cult, uh, they can't promise you you'll be in heaven. You're going to just get to live on the earth uh, because the 144,000 tickets have already been given out. All right. Let me pray for us. Is there a prophetic significance to that number? Um, there's 12,000 from 12 tribes, and it adds up to 144,000. Yes, that's right. The answer is no. Let me pray for us. Go ahead. There will be. Yes. It will literally be here, right here on this earth. It is. Let me pray for you, then. I'm going to tell you a cool story right after we shut the recorder off. Father, I thank you for this chance to study your word, and I thank you for those that are listening right now uh, online, and thank you for how you've uh, encouraged me today by running into folks who have actually been listening to the radio program and the studies online. And Father, we just pray that it will continue to be used to you however you desire. 
But Lord, thank You again for this chance to get together and to study Your Word. Thank You for the excitement that we feel because we know Your Word is true and alive. Even if we don't understand all of it, that's okay because our understanding of it doesn't change it. It's going to happen. We thank You for the promise that we have of Jesus Christ. We thank You for the seal that we have received of His Spirit, Your Spirit living within us. And Lord, we thank You for the fact that You're going to walk us through the days that we're in. And one day we get to see you face to face and it will all make sense. But until then, may we still trust you even when it doesn't. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.